Uh, it's good to be with you, uh, and we're going to turn now to a time uh, in God's Word. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there is a stack of Bibles on the back table. Uh, you're free to grab one, take it with you. Uh, but we are pressing on in a short Advent series uh, that I've entitled, Do Not Be Afraid. Uh, and we are two weeks into that three-week series. Uh, we pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, uh, the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, I'm going to read through to verse 38. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can open it there with me and and listen as I read. You there? That sounded aggressive. Are you there? It's like, you there? (laughs) Get there. (laughs) All right, Luke 1, starting at verse 26. Uh, listen to God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Would you pray with me briefly one more time? Lord, we confess again that it is your spirit that gives life and that the flesh is of no help, of no use at all. And so we pray that by your spirit now, that you would preach a better sermon to our hearts than the one that will come out of my mouth. That you would minister to the hearts of your people exactly what they need to hear from this text. That your gospel would be lifted up, that your son, our savior, would be exalted and lifted up. And that we would again find comfort and rest and joy and peace in his name. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth, that your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I told you about William James, uh, a 19th century philosopher who, after examining a number of different religions, drew this universal conclusion about humanity. Do you remember? No, you don't, so I'm going to remind you. He said, there is a worm at the core of our existence, something that continually eats away at us, and it is the fear of our inevitable and inescapable death. That fear controls us and tortures us in ways that we don't like to admit and can't even see sometimes. It's a fear that manifests in a thousand different ways as we desperately cling to things to distract ourselves or to divert our attention away from this impending reality. We also said that it's in that darkness and it's into that desperation that God speaks. And his first words to us are, 
do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We're, we're, we're looking at Luke's birth narrative and specifically uh, at three places where we see angels sent by God to announce the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Angels show up on a scene and they declare, they, they herald the good news of the redemption that God purposes to bring through the coming of his son. And at the beginning of each of these announcements, of these declarations, are these words in some form, do not be afraid, fear not. It is the very beginning of the gospel, and we certainly have so many reasons to be afraid, don't we? Reasons uh, on the outside of us, a fear of what's inside of us, fear of what may happen in the future, or fear of the impact of maybe what's already happened. And yet in Christ, God's word to us this season and every season is, do not be afraid. In other words, to know God through his son. This is the whole thing I'm trying to get you to see. If you want to know the sermon, here it is in a sentence. To know God through his son is to know peace and rest and joy. It is to live without fear. That's all I'm trying to get you to see. To know God by his son is to know joy and rest and peace. It is to live without fear. And our passage this morning uh, more fully explains that remedy for fear by showing us two things. We, we looked at how the fear is addressed in the passage last week as the angel comes to Zechariah, but now uh, more fully explained again as that same angel Gabriel comes to Mary, Mary. We see two things. We see first the objects of God's grace the objects of God's grace, God's grace, and number two, we see the instrument of God's grace. The objects and the instruments. Let's look at the objects of God's grace. You with me? You tracking with me? Fear, death, gospel, peace, rest. The objects of God's grace. From the very beginning, from the angels' announcements to Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, now to Mary and Joseph, Uh, we learn one very important truth, and that is that God's salvation comes to us by grace alone. Amen? That is, it will come to us only through the unmerited, undeserved goodness of God, not because we qualify or have made ourselves worthy, but because he is merciful and kind to sinners. Look at Gabriel's greeting in verse 28. Verse 28 says, and he, that's Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary's going to find a different kind of grace, right? No one here is called to, be, uh, to bear in their womb. The, the, the Savior, but I want to hear, I want you to hear God saying those words to you. Don't be afraid because you found favor with God. Why does God come to Mary? The text answers, she is a favored one and has found favor with God. Now, contrary to uh, Roman Catholicism, and, and I'm, I'm going to pick here on Catholics a little bit because I know a number of you have come out of Catholic backgrounds, and I also know that we are in a predominantly Catholic town. And you may find yourselves having a number, a number of conversations with uh, Roman Catholics. Contrary to what Roman Catholics claim, this is not, this, this description of Mary as a favored one or as one who has found favor with God, it, it, it is not because there is something unique or exceptional in Mary, but because she is the undeserving object of God's grace. That's literally what the word favor means in the original language. Favored one is to be one who has has been bestowed grace upon. One who has become the object or the target or the recipient of God's grace. She is not Mary full of grace, 
as the Hail Mary would say, as if grace were some virtue brimming over in her heart, but Mary, object of grace. Mary, recipient of grace. She is one who has been graced by God or who has found favor. That is one who has become, again, the object, the target, the recipient. There is nothing intrinsic to Mary that qualifies her for this unique role in redemptive history. Uh, And it is, don't get me wrong, this is a unique, distinctive role in redemptive history. But this distinct privilege has come because of something extrinsic. Not intrinsic, but extrinsic, external to her, that is outside of her. And what was extrinsically acting upon her, what was externally acting upon her, was the grace of God to bring about his purposes. And this should not surprise us. We see God doing this all throughout the scriptures, don't we? In the first several chapters of the whole Bible, after the fall, we find the world and mankind has devolved into such evil that God determined to wipe out every family except one. We read this in Genesis 6. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I want to show you something, because we, I, I think we, I, don't, I, I can't speak for you, I don't know your heart, but I think we have this tendency. I'm going to show you a couple other examples, and I think what, when we read that, what we hear is God looked at Noah, and he saw something in Noah. He saw some righteousness, he saw some, something good in Noah. And so God set his grace upon him. There is nothing, there is nothing in the text to suggest that Noah was any different than all of the ungodly, sinful, wicked people that are going to drown in the flood. Not one thing different except this, God's decision to show grace to him. God's free choice to pour out his blessing and favor upon Noah. And that grace and that favor winds up being the very basis for Noah's righteous life. In Acts 7, Stephen summarizes the, the, you remember the deacon, Stephen, martyred Stephen? He summarizes the history of the Jews, and when he gets to David, and we're going to come to David again in just a little bit, when he gets to David, who was anointed king by the prophet Samuel, he describes David as one who found favor in the sight of God. The same kind of language. Mary, favored one, who found favor with God. Noah, found favor in the eyes of law, uh, favor in the eyes of the Lord. David, Stephen says, found favor in the sight of God. In, in other words, David, again, is chosen by God because of uh, God's free grace, not because of any inherent qualifications in David. If anything, it's the opposite. We, we do think that. We look at someone like David and we go, surely the Lord saw something in him. Or think of the Apostle Paul, who when reflecting on his own life, and you read this throughout the epistles, when, a, when Paul reflects on his own life and ministry, he attributes his, his salvation, first of all, but his apostleship completely to the gracious call of God. For no other reason, God chose to set his grace upon Paul, and that is the very basis for his identity as a Christian and as an apostle. And look, here's what I'm trying to get get at. You have to settle in your minds and in your hearts in response to the scriptures whether or not you believe that God actually shows unmerited kindness to completely undeserving sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God looks upon people who have nothing, zero, to recommend them to God. Nothing in themselves that would make God go, hmm, okay, there's someone I could use. Oh, okay, I I could see him. Yep, 
I could see her. That, I, that, that makes sense to me. Do you believe in a God who looks at sinners who are completely broken and wretched and wicked and useless and because of his own free grace decides to pour out kindness and blessing and love and to do eternal good to them? Do you believe that? It's what we see happening throughout all the scriptures. And this is the story of redemption from start to finish. God unilaterally, freely deciding in the face of a world completely broken and ruined by sin that he's going to do everything that is necessary to bring about salvation in his own power, by his own strength, according to his grace. And so it is with Mary. Like, there she is. She's going about her business, living her life. She's betrothed, her whole life ahead of her. She's making plans, and then God sends Gabriel, and bam. Through no effort or qualifications of her own, she is graciously called by God to bear in her womb the one that would be the Savior of mankind. According to God's wise, purpose, uh, wise purposes, he freely chooses to set his grace and kindness upon Mary by calling her and equipping, calling and equipping her for this role. Do you notice the initial greeting? He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That, 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 that little phrase there, the Lord is with you, it actually is a pledge. It's a pledge that God makes to actually sustain and help her and equip, and equip her to do the very thing that he is going to call her to do. So not only is she the target and the object of God's grace, it comes with a pledge that that grace is never going to run out. That grace is going to be with you from now until forever. And here's the point. What, what is the source and substance and the sustaining power behind Mary's call? It is completely God's free grace. It is the free choice, the gracious choice of God to set his love and kindness upon Mary. And look, here's what I want you to see. The beginning of the gospel comes to us in this way, saying, do not be afraid. Listen, this is the good news. Do not be afraid. God has freely chosen, not because of anything in you, but he has freely chosen to be gracious to you, to set his love upon you, to be abundantly kind to you in Jesus Christ. There's one other place in the New Testament where the same root, the, the root word that is attributed to this verb, favored one, and, and the one favored by God. There's one other place where that root word, to bestow favor upon, is used. And do you know who it is used of? Christians. We read it earlier in this, uh, in this service. Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us. That word, it's actually the same word. With which he has showed favor to. With which he has made the objects of his grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, do not be afraid. Why? Why? Don't be afraid. There's a million things to be afraid of. There's a million things that would stir in us anxiety and worry and fear. But the gospel comes with us and says, do not be afraid. Why? Because through no effort of your own, through no qualifications of worthiness inherent to you, God unilaterally and freely chose to be gracious to you, to pour out his kindness to you, to set his love upon you and do for you something that you could never, ever do for yourself, to make you his own, to call you a son, to call you a daughter, daughter to adopt you into his family, to, to handle the problem of your sin, to bring about forgiveness and a righteousness that, again, you could never attain to on your own, to do all of that for you so that you would have 
right standing with him so that you would be counted among his people and so that you would know that you have eternal, an eternal righteousness, an eternal safety in his presence, that you have all of his promises secured to you in Christ forever and ever. We, we, we love adoption, as Paul's talking about adoption here in this church, or in this passage. And we love adoption here in this church because of the wonderful picture it is of this reality of a God who, who just plucks us up in love for no other reason than that he is determined to make us his own, that he is determined to pour out his love and kindness upon us. And if that is, listen, if that is the basis for your belonging with him, if that is the basis for your justification, for your right standing, if that is the basis for your entire future and eternity, what do you have to fear? What do you have to be afraid of? What is there to worry about really? You are his and he is yours and nothing can change it, threaten it, destroy it, alter it because it is rooted in the unshakable grace of God. Mary became the mother of Jesus because God made her an object of his grace. And you all, if you are in Christ, have become children of God and the brother of Jesus for the very same reason, because God has made you an object of his grace. Do you struggle to believe that? I told you, you need to settle in your minds whether or not you believe God shows grace to sinners, totally unworthy. Do do you also believe that he desires to show kindness to you after the week that you've had, after the morning you've had, after the year that you had? Do you believe that in Christ he looks upon you and his desire is to love, bless, cherish, support, provide, draw near to. It's the objects of God's grace. Uh, The next thing uh, we see here in this passage is the instrument of God's grace. The instrument. Notice that that, that God's grace did not come to Mary, and God's grace does not come to us in the abstract. God's grace doesn't come as an idea, doesn't come as an uh, an argument, as a philosophy, as a set of principles. No, God's grace came to Mary, and it comes to us as a person. Verse 30 The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then the very next verse, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You see what the angel is saying? Mary, you are the object of God's grace. You are the target. Like God, his grace, he has got you in his sights, and he is going to pour out his grace on you. And the instrument of that grace outworking of that grace, the thing that he is going to do that is going to be gracious, is he is going to cause the very Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, to be born from your womb. The grace isn't just an abstract idea. It's not a philosophy. It's a person. Grace comes to us as a person. It's this person who is not only the instrument of God's grace, but who is the very grace of God. He is God's grace. If you are a Christian, it is because you have been united by faith with a person. I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget like, like the gospel in our minds is an equation. It's like, like the, you know, the, the equation has to balance. It's a set of ideas. And it is. You know, Christianity is a, uh, a propositional faith. There are truths. There are ideas that you need to embrace. But our salvation, we, we were not saved by an idea. 
We are not saved by a philosophy. A, a philosophy did not die on a cross for our sins. You have salvation because of a person. And you have been brought into relationship with a person. Indeed, with the, the, the triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is to just consider and meditate again on this person, Jesus, and who he really is. Because it is ultimately in seeing him and in knowing him that we become recipients of God's grace. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, how do I, how do I receive God's grace, maybe you would wonder. It is in knowing and seeing the instrument of God's grace, which is the person of Jesus Christ. It is the nearer you draw to Christ, the more that you see him and come to know him, the more you become a recipient of God's grace. The more God's grace works in your life. Now, we could spend the rest of our lives, and, 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 and we will, uh, and, and, and all of eternity, exploring and marveling at the, the glory of the one who is born to Mary, and, and we could never exhaust all that's there. Uh, but as we just turn to meditate, for a few moments, to just meditate, is that okay? Can we do that? Like, so, sometimes these sermons, it's like an argument. I'm trying to wor- work you through and see this, and like, okay, here's, here's A plus B equals C. And he, I, I just want to take the next... 15 minutes, 20 minutes or so, and, and meditate and consider again the person of Jesus Christ as we see him described here in this passage. And let our hearts again wonder. Let our hearts again be filled with joy and praise and confidence again at who our Savior is. Can we do that? Is your heart excited to do that? Does your heart long to dwell in knowing Christ and seeing Christ? Five things. Five things we're reminded of here in the person of Jesus Christ. First, we're reminded that this one in Mary's womb was the very Son of God, equal in every way with the Father and the Spirit. In verse 32, Gabriel says to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This language of Most High is only used of God in the Scriptures, uh, something Mary would have known full well. So if you've heard that song, you know, Mary, did you know? The answer is yes, she knew. Did she know the extent? Did Mary have a fullness of, the, of understanding at, at what it was for God to be growing in her womb? Of course not. But did she know that this one who was in her womb was, in fact, God himself? The scriptures would say, yes, she did. Here the angel says this, this language of most high will rightly be used to describe this child. The language parallels that of the announcement to John who says he will be great before the Lord. However, there's a difference here because John will be great because of his life before the Lord. John will be great because of his life before the Lord, but Jesus will be great because he is the Lord. The angel goes on to say in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. See, here we see it is the very Spirit of God which is described as the power of the Most High that will overshadow Mary and cause her to conceive this child. His, his, his earthly beginnings come from the one who has no beginning. And he is of the same substance as this one so that the child conceived by the Holy Spirit is himself called Holy, the Son of God. And, and listen, when we think about that word, holy, uh, that, that, at least in this passage, it's not primarily that he is perfectly pure, though he is. It's not primarily that he is uniquely set apart, though he is. 
It is that he is made of the same stuff. You see, the Holy Spirit will conceive, and so he will be holy, the Son of God. As we recited for the last few months, uh, the Nicene Creed. I hope that that was a blessing to you. I know reciting things can be a little, you know, if you've grown up in a, a very liturgical church, you know, it can, it can, I don't know, it could be burdensome. But, uh, you, you know, one of the things we, we're trying to do over time is to uh, root again uh, the church and, and particularly this body in church history uh, and, and to remind ourselves that we're not confessing anything new, but we're, we're, we are uh, confessing the same things that Christians have been confessing for 2,000 years. Uh, and so I hope that that was a blessing to you. But one of the things that we recite in the Nicene Creed is that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So that Paul can say, in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is, there is nothing that you can say about God that you can't say about Jesus. Everything you can say about God, you can say it about Jesus. And yet, at the very same time, we must say that he is not only fully God, but in addition, he is really and fully human. Though he is conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, she must carry, her, carry him in her womb and give birth to him. That phrase, you will bear a son, it literally, it's, it's the, the, the physiological, like scientific term for give birth. She's going to have to give birth. He must grow through every stage of human development. Embryo, fetus, newborn, toddler, preteen, teenager, adult. And here's where our brains just sort of start to short circuit. Right? When we remember that the one who came from Mary's womb is the same one who knit Mary together in her mother's womb. That the one who is now sleeping in Mary's arms is at the same time the one who never tires and never grows weary, who never slumbers and never sleeps. That the one now crying for his mother is the same one who gives life and breath to everything. That the one who must grow and learn is the same one who from all eternity never changes. That the one who is now a helpless baby is the creator of the whole cosmos. That the one who is going to have to learn his ABCs is the same one who named the stars. Who's sufficient for these things? The scriptures confirm for us that he is human in every conceivable way except that he was without sin. He grew tired. He got hungry. He shivered. He sweat. He got head colds. He felt the whole range of human emotions that you feel. The author of Hebrews tells us that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things and was made like his brothers in every respect. And then, Two chapters later, he goes on to say that he has become for us a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness because he was tempted just as we are in every way, yet without sin. He is fully God. He is fully man. And, and, and I, I, this is not hyperbole. We could spend the next 12 hours here just turning that reality over and over again in our heads and rejoicing and wondering and trying to get our minds around the glory of that reality. He is fully God and fully man. He is also the fulfillment of all scripture. If you're taking notes, that was number one, fully God and fully man. Number two, he is the fulfillment of all scripture. Next, we learn that the arrival of this baby is the climactic fulfillment of all of God's promise. Verse 32 goes on 
The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. It is the direct fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, wherein God made this promise to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you know, interestingly, the offspring that is referenced here in in, uh, 2 Samuel 7, the offspring referenced here is not offspring plural, but offspring singular, pointing to one descendant. One descendant of David's that God would raise up to establish an eternal kingdom. And we're going to come back to that kingdom component shortly. But the point here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. All of history has been straining up to this point, straining for it up to this point, looking for this one, this one that God had promised who would come, who would be the offspring of David, and who would inaugurate a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that would have no end. We, we read... Um, earlier in our, in our service. Do you remember in Isaiah 9? This is such a wonderful picture of this kingdom that David's offspring, Jesus Christ, comes to bring, right? It says, his name shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, one was promised that would come and establish a perfect kingdom, a kingdom of justice, and righteousness. And he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the one offspring. And you know, that that reality takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Do you, you know in Genesis 3, do you, do you know where the gospel is? For, I just, you know, I buried, you know, didn't bury the lead there. But the first place that the gospel is preached, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. That word offspring there, again, singular, pointing forward to an offspring, a descendant, one who would come and reverse the effects of the curse. You see, from from Genesis all the way through To Revelation, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made. He is the substance of every shadow that is there in the Old Testament. So that when Jesus looks at the Old Testament, right, when he talks to his disciples about the Old Testament in Luke 24, he says, all the Psalms, all the prophets, all the law, it's all about me. It's all pointing to me. It's all with reference to me. And now listen, if God is faithful, what we see in this announcement is that, again, all history has been straining forward to this, this point, that God will and has perfectly kept his promise to bring about this offspring in this advent, in this coming of Christ. They were waiting, they were waiting, they were waiting, longing, hoping. And then God arrives on the scene. The angel Gabriel shows up and says, today is the day in which God is going to fulfill all of his promises in this one, in Christ. And listen, here's what I want you to know. If God has kept that promise, is there one other promise that he won't keep? You know, listen, you know you're waiting too, don't you? You're, You're waiting, you're hoping You're longing, but you're not hoping and longing for Christ's first advent. You're hoping and longing for Christ's second advent. You're hoping in that day when the one who came as a baby will come again as a conquering king, riding upon a horse to call unto himself all his people. And how do you know that day will come? Because he came. Because God promised for thousands of years that one would come and then in, in, 
in a moment, an angel showed up and said, here he is. He's coming. And so you can be sure that that day also will come. He's the fulfillment of all scripture. He's fully God. He's fully man. We find also that he is a humble servant. You see that here pointed to in this text. The passage begins in the sixth month. That's in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And again, we find uh, Gabriel dispatched with this message, and God sends Gabriel to this backwater village called Nazareth. Now, you know Nazareth. If I say Nazareth, you know what I'm talking about because, you know, you've grown up and, and, and you've heard the Christmas story and you know Nazareth. But prior to Jesus' birth, this village would have been uh, completely unknown to anyone that was not from the area. Just, you, you know, when, uh, if I go to like a conference or if I talk to like other pastors, they'd be like, hey, where are you a pastor? And I'll say, well, I pastor in a town that's halfway between Philly and Atlantic City. Do you want to know why I say that? Because if I say I'm a pastor in Williamstown, that means nothing. That will literally, if I go to, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, out of state or, or wherever, hey, unless it's someone from this area, hey, I'm a pastor in Williamstown, that literally means nothing. That's Nazareth. It would literally mean nothing. And not only that, Gabriel is sent to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose only pedigree is that he is a distant descendant of King David. However, their lives have none of the marks of royalty or importance. Joseph is a blue-collar worker. Mary is a young woman, probably a teenager. And you know ultimately that their firstborn little boy isn't going to be born surrounded by the trappings of wealth and luxury, but in a stall where he will be laid in a repurposed feeding trough. Now let me ask you, where do important people come from? Where, where do important people come from? They come from, that's true, they do come from God. I mean, in, in a worldly sense. They come from important places and from important families who do important things. But from the very beginning, we find the humility of our Savior becomes, because he comes into the world boasting no earthly pedigree. He's not from New York or London or not that I understand. I was a history, these, I know these cities did not exist. I'm trying, trying to make a rhetorical point here. Doesn't come from New York or London or Paris or LA. He's from like Clayton, Franklinville, Williamstown. His family isn't wealthy or well known. His background is, in one sense, totally unimpressive and ordinary and unremarkable. It reminds us that though he is God made flesh and the King of Kings, he does not come into the world this conquering hero, but he comes as a humble servant, as a baby. It sets the course for his whole earthly ministry, which would be one of humble service to sinners. He didn't come into the world but to, to serve. He didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He, he chose to make himself low. Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Fully God, fully man, the fulfillment of all scriptures, a humble servant. And again, the text tells us he comes, even as a humble servant, he comes, though, as an eternal king. The text tells us the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Not born into nobility or surrounded by the trappings of royalty, yet nevertheless he is born a king. You, you may remember the words that kicked off Jesus' public ministry. Do you remember the words that kick off public, uh, Jesus' public ministry? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus says, in, his, in the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of God is here. Now, how can he say that? He can say that because he is the king of that kingdom. And where the king goes, there his kingdom is. 
He can say the kingdom of God is here because he is there. So what is this kingdom? We, we, we looked at, started to look at it in Isaiah 9 there. It is an everlasting kingdom of justice, of perfect righteousness where there is no evil, where there is no sin, no darkness, no decay, no destruction, no death, only light and joy and peace and goodness and love. It is a perfect kingdom unstained by the curse. A kingdom where righteousness dwells. And it is not just a kingdom that has justice in it, but the picture you get is that all of the good things about this kingdom are ever increasing. Never diminishing. Never decaying. Only enhancing for all eternity. This kingdom is perfect because it is ruled by a perfect king who loves and delights in all his people and who counts not only those who belong to his kingdom as his people, but as his own family. His rule is righteous and just and kind and good. And listen, all of his enemies are forever crushed by him so that there is never any threat or danger or end to this kingdom. All his people live forever in harmony, holiness, and eternal happiness as they rejoice forever in the presence of the king. And, and, and by the way, I know those can just be words. They're words that we need to think about and, and meditate on. But if you really believe that reality is coming for you, if, if you really believe that God's grace has you in its sight, and that means that reality is a certain coming fixed reality for you, it absolutely eviscerates the fear of the future. It removes the fear of what's to come because all you have to look forward to is the ever-increasing fulfillment of all that you have longed for your entire life. For Christians, listen, Let me talk about Christmas for a minute. You, you know the anticipation and the excitement of Christmas. Kids, I know, I haven't, I haven't addressed you yet this sermon. Kids, raise your hands if you're excited about Christmas Day. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, you count. It's exciting, isn't it? The time that you get to spend with family, the time around uh, a tree and gifts and exchanging presents, there's all this anticipation of this wonderful day that we'll, we'll get to spend together. But then Christmas comes and goes. Toys break. Food spoils. Company grows sour. <laughs> you know, for a Christian, for the Christian... The best is always yet to come. For the Christian, there is only the anticipation of ever-increasing joy in the presence of God that will never, ever disappoint. That, that's, that's the letdown of Christmas, isn't it? I'm so, so, so sorry. It's exciting. <laughs> but that's the letdown of Christmas, right? Like It's all this buildup. It's all this anticipation. And then the day comes, and then it's over, and then it's January 17th, and you're like, what happened? It's over. Maybe, maybe next Christmas will be better. I don't know. But like the, this future glory, this eternal kingdom that's coming, this, this wonderful kingdom is not going to be a day that just passes and then we're like, oh, that was, that was cool, I guess. No, it's going to be the ever-increasing joy in the presence of this king where you will know him and he will know you and perfect love and perfect fellowship and perfect righteousness. Do you know why this is such a disconnect? Because we can't even imagine it. All we know, listen, the world that you, you're like fish in the water. You can't imagine a life outside the water, right? You just breathe and eat 
and sleep, a world that is filled with the curse. Yet when I say to you, an eternal kingdom of righteousness and justice where there is no sin, you're like, okay, sounds good. I have no idea what that's going to be like. And frankly, I don't know what that's going to be like, but I know it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be really, really good, and it's going to get better and better and better, and it's going to be perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect rest. Every longing that you have here in this life fulfilled into eternity in ever-increasing measure. Add on every superlative. Last one. I said 15, 20 minutes, and that 20 minutes has passed. (laughs) Uh, last one. He is fully God, fully man, the fulfillment of all scripture, humble servant, eternal king, and lastly, he is faithful savior. Listen, if you're honest with yourself, the reality of Jesus as a perfectly just and righteous king should terrify you. Do you hear what I just said? If you're honest with yourself, the reality of a coming, righteous, perfect king who crushes all his enemies should terrify you. Why? Because in this kingdom, he crushes all evil and all sin and all who oppose him. And if he comes to do that, then where we find ourselves is not comfortably on the inside of his kingdom, but hopelessly and terrifyingly on the outside of his kingdom, because in our sin, we have rebelled against him. Because in our sin, we have set ourselves in opposition to him. And so rightly what should happen when this king, having inaugurated his kingdom and one day will fully consummate his kingdom, what should await us is that that king should look at us and say, you are forever banished out of my presence. You may not come in, you may not experience joy, you may not experience rest, but what you should experience is an eternity of hopeless darkness. All of your worst fears in ever-increasing measure. And yet again, we find here in this text what I've been trying to unfold for you. That is the instrument of God's grace. That this king, this humble servant, is the very instrument of God's grace by which he would bring you into this kingdom. That is the one who is fully God and fully man, who is fulfillment, who is humble servant, who is promised king, is all of these things for sinners. The angel doesn't only tell Mary she's going to have a son. She tells him, tells, he tells her, This is what his name's going to be. His name's going to be Jesus. His name's going to be Yeshua. And it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. He has come into the world supremely as the one who will save his people from their sins. He comes into the world as the very instrument of God's grace to bring salvation, to do for you what you could never do for yourselves, to deliver you from the fear of death and judgment, to reconcile to you, uh, you to God through his own perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. You know, what we find in the scriptures is a tale of two gardens. A tale of two gardens because, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the first garden... What you see is, is Adam. Do, do you remember this? When, when Adam and Eve sin, and when they've realized they sin, and God begins to call out to Adam in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve hide themselves. They sow fig leaves to cover themselves. Why? Because they were afraid. Because they were afraid. Because they knew the guilt of their sin. Because in an instant, their eyes were opened and they saw their shame. They saw the penalty that rightly belonged to them. And so they hid out of fear. But this one who is born to Mary, we're going to find him in a garden as well. 
at the end of his life, you know, he, see, Jesus is born into the world a baby and takes on flesh, not so that we can have a fun Christmas celebration. He takes on flesh because you need, if you're going to die, you need a body. He needed a body so that he could die so that he could bear in his body judgment and penalty. And, and, and we're going to find this very one in a garden. And in that garden, we're going to find God, the Father, holding out to him a cup of wrath and judgment and penalty. And do you know what we find Jesus doing? He's cowering. He's trembling. He's sweating blood. He's filled with anxiety. He's afraid. What is it that can make the very Son of God afraid? Why is he afraid? Because he knows the same thing Adam knew. He knows that what rightly belongs to him, if he drinks this cup, is the judgment and penalty of God. Not for his sin. That cup does not belong to him by rights. That cup belongs to him because he chooses to drink it in your place. We find Jesus afraid, cowering, trembling, sweating blood, and he takes the cup and he goes to the cross and he bears in his body all of the wrath of God for your sin. He humbles himself that he could serve you by laying down his life for you. He comes as a king not to expel you out of his kingdom, but to tell you the good news. That not only has God's kingdom arrived in Jesus, but through Jesus there is a way into that kingdom by faith. And, and how, listen, as I close real quick, how, how are we to respond you know, I told you last week we shouldn't respond like Zechariah. This week I'm telling you, you should respond like Mary. Mary responds in faith. There's a, there's a little phrase here in this text where it says, uh, for all things, uh, for nothing will be impossible with God. If I, does anyone have the NIV here? Anyone read on the NIV? Sue, read for me what it says. It's actually a better translation. I mean, don't take my word for it, but I think it's a better translation. For no word of God will fail. And then you see later it says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's the same word there. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you want to know what faith that saves is? Faith that saves is, is looking at God and hearing God and taking him at his word. Do, do you believe? This is why I asked you. Do you believe in a God who shows grace to sinners? The scriptures tell you there are words on this page, in this book, that say God delights to show grace to sinners. And the instrument of that grace is Jesus, who has finished a work of salvation so that anyone who comes, and, comes to him and calls on his name has entrance into this kingdom. Take him at his word. Believe his word. Trust his word. That through no efforts of your own, through nothing that you do, but through that word, through the faithfulness of that word, you have a right standing with God. You have entrance into the kingdom. That this would be the basis, basis of your confidence, the source of all your joy. So do what the angel said to Mary, behold, that is, look into Jesus, set your eyes on him, rely on him, collapse into him, fall back into him, depend fully on him, take him at his word, and trust that this one, this God-man and servant king, is a perfect and sufficient savior, and that all who call on him in faith, even this morning, will know him, will be reconciled to him, and that in knowing him, you will never have to be afraid. So brothers and sisters, rejoice again. Rejoice again and rest this morning and knowing that if you are in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ, you are a children by God's mercy. You are the target of his steadfast love and faithfulness. You are the objects of his free grace in Christ. And Jesus, he has poured out to you every spiritual blessing and has promised that he will be with you no matter what, forever and ever. So take heart 
and do not be afraid. Christ has come and he will come again. Trust him for his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this time. Uh, the hour's late, but we thank you that we can take time to just dwell upon your son, to dwell upon his glory, his majesty, his worth, the grace that you have poured out to us in Christ. Lord, help us to continue to dwell upon him, to look to him, that in looking to him, we might be transformed more and more into his image. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.